Today on Peace Talks Radio, can sports programs and sports figures point the way to peace? Well, I think sports is one of the most enjoyable parts of everyone's life that brings people closer together. We found an annual basketball camp in El Paso, Texas that was trying to do just that. And to me, nonviolence is the way. Are we changing the world at basketball in the barrio? I don't know that, but you know, I'm just trying to do my little part. Also, which sports stars over the years have taken bold stances on peace and social justice issues? In essence, what we're doing is we're, we're putting these great athletes front and center that had been uh, at the forefront of social change. And again, it's men like Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Clemente. And why don't more sports figures take a social issue stance today? Well, sadly, I think the thing that holds back most athletes is that purposeful isolation, whether it's initiated by themselves or by their handlers. The Peacemaking Potential of Sports, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or exploring how we can all reduce conflict and achieve more peace with each other in our families, workplaces, nation, or world, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Carol Boss. Today, how sports can be used to point to peace. Now, we're prepping this particular program at a time in the fall of 2014 when sports headlines are as much about pro football players facing domestic violence, child abuse, and shooting crime charges, and crippling game injuries, as about the potential for sports to bring together athletes from all ethnicities, nationalities, and sexual preferences to bond and celebrate the fun, skill, and mutual respect of sport. And as you'll hear, all of our guests, although all sports enthusiasts who believe in the potential of sports to stand for peace and cooperation, are somewhat conflicted over how well sports meets that goal these days. We're starting today with an annual sporting event that on the surface may seem sort of small, a two-day summer basketball camp in the border city of El Paso, Texas. But the hearts behind the camp seem sort of large, and the perspective the camp offers is sort of large too. Carol Boss talked with Russ Bradbird, one of the directors of Basketball in the Barrio, Bradbird is a former collegiate basketball player and coach who both loves sports, sees some potential for good in it, but also doesn't especially like where sports has come to sit in the order of priorities in society these days. He was led to use sports as an avenue to teach other lessons, the way he remembers a local boxer in an El Paso barrio doing just that. Well, I was an assistant basketball coach at the University of Texas El Paso, uh, UTEP, uh, for eight seasons. And I, you know, came to really love El Paso. It's a really interesting place and a unique town. It's the largest uh, population center on an international border in the world. But, I, you know, the kids in El Paso, most of them couldn't afford to go to the university's basketball camp. And uh, so I got very sort of interested in the idea of putting on a camp for cheaper. And I'd met a man named Rocky Galarza. Rocky was a, a boxing trainer, and he trained kids, boys and girls, mostly teenagers, in his courtyard of his bar and restaurant. He trained kids for free for 30 or 40 years. And so I was one of his, I would go and punch the punching bags to try and, you know, was a, coaching basketball in college was a stressful job. And so I, I went there just to sort of let off steam, I guess. And so I was friends with Rocky and he was murdered in 1997 uh, uh, in his own home. 
And I got the idea of sort of keeping Rocky Galarza's name alive through uh, through a, a sports program in his neighborhood in Segundo Barrio, which is the second ward in El Paso, very one of the poorest neighborhoods in America. Not an entirely dangerous neighborhood at all. It's actually a pretty safe neighborhood, but very poor. And so I got the idea of doing this camp in Rocky's memory. I couldn't teach boxing to kids, but you know, as a former basketball coach, I felt like this was a way to keep Rocky's legacy alive and to sort of have some input uh, in, in the community of El Paso. One of the interesting changes that happened in Segundo in the, in the 1950s, there was a, a priest named Father Ram. It's spelled R-A-H-M. And Father Ram rode a bicycle ever, everywhere he went. And he was very interested in using sports as a way to sort of get kids away from violence, keep them away from gangs you know, keep them off the street at night. And so he was actually you know, sort of one of the early proponents. You know, midnight basketball has gotten to be a big thing around the country. Uh, but Father Ram was one of the first proponents in El Paso of, uh, of, of using sports to distract kids from, uh, from poverty and sort of keep them on a different path. And Rocky Galarza, of course, would have known Father Ram and, and grew, up, you know, grew up in that neighborhood. What was the, the, the year that basketball in the barrio began? Well, it depends on how you define it, Carol. We, we, when Rocky was Rocky Galarza was killed in 1997, and from that day on, we've been charging a dollar. But before that, we were charging twenty and twenty-five dollars. But it wasn't until it wasn't until Rocky's death in '97. So, in my mind, I think of it as it, it actually began in the early '90s in '92. But we were charging kids twenty and twenty-five dollars at that time, and so it has a has a much different feel. And it took me a long time. The the camp is always evolving. At first, the, by in nineteen ninety two was pretty much just a dribbling and basketball skills camp. But I frankly, I got a little bit bored with that, and so it started evolving into more educational aspects and using music and art as sort of a lure to bring the kids in. But I think in in its current you know in its current form, I would say nineteen ninety seven was the first year. It's a little bit unique, but it's also part of, of, of a much greater tradition, and that's what Father Ram did, but also what Rocky Galarza did. And then on a sort of more uh, glamorous scale, you know, Don Haskins, the basketball coach at the University of Texas, El Paso, he was the first coach in America to start five African-American players and win the national championship in 1966. And Nolan Richardson played for him, of course. And so there's this long history in El Paso of sports being used as an agent for social change. And I got very interested in the history of the area, but also in sort of a, a greater role for sports than television and huge contracts for the coaches and sellout crowds. Let's talk a little bit about another aspect of El Paso. It's a military town. Fort Bliss is there. I, I imagine a large presence. There's the expanding militarization of the border. Would you say there was an awareness that youth had of the militarization all around them? To me, I have a, you know, I'm acutely aware of it. Now, are the six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds aware of it? I don't think so, but I think where it affects them is, you know, money, you know, money for school dollars and that kind of thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's no great secret that the majority of our taxes go to, you know, go to the military. And, you know, in El, in El Paso, you know, the, the military is kind of front and center, although maybe not so much in Segundo Barrio. But, you know, what I'm trying to teach kids is a nonviolent response to, to conflict and working things out and, a, and a, the tradition of nonviolence, particularly in the, in the sports movement. And it's difficult to do when, you know, when the, when the federal government's response 
often seems to be a violent response first and foremost. I mean, how do I tell a kid not to hit another kid when that's exactly what our foreign policy is? To me, nonviolence is the way, and it's it's the way forward. But it's something that, you know, it, it, I think it constantly needs needs to be brainwashed into kids is this idea that the, what you're seeing on television and what you're seeing in the media, uh, the violent response that seems to be appropriate in every other aspect is not appropriate for us. And, you know, I think we all do what we can, Carol. Is that, are, are we changing the world at basketball in the barrio? I don't know that, and I don't know what, you know, what kids take away from it. But, you know, I'm just trying to do my little part. How do you teach kids not to hit, not to bully, not to be violent? How you connect them to the whole idea of peace and, and tolerance? I know for me personally, it, a lot of it starts with Muhammad Ali, and he's a he's a, a big figure at the camp. You know, that's one of the posters that the kids can take away as a Muhammad Ali poster. And he here was the most famous athlete in the world, uh, maybe the most famous athlete in the history of the world, with the possible exception of Michael Jordan. Uh, and he gave up his heavyweight boxing title because he refused induction into the United States military, and it cost him millions of dollars at the prime of his career, but he stood up for a principle. Admittedly, that kind of uh, unselfishness is rare, but it's not unheard of, and sports has often been at the forefront of social change. And so what we do at Basketball in the Barrio is focus on, on people like Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, Billie Jean King, and, and even, even, you know, even on to Jason Collins and, and, uh, and, and athletes like that who have, have, who have used sports as sort of this platform to, to talk about changing the world for the better. I think it's exactly what Don Haskins did in 1966, except that Don Haskins wasn't interested in politics, didn't see, it as a, uh, didn't see what he had done as a political act, didn't, I don't think, understood what the repercussions would be. And, and the blowback, or even the changes that he was about to bring about, I'm more interested in the politics, I think, than Don Haskins ever was, and probably more outspoken about, you know, about the repercussions of the place of sports in the world and, and, and that kind of thing. But but in essence, what we're doing is we're, we're putting these great athletes front and center that had been uh, at the forefront of social change. And again, it's men like Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Clemente. So Rocky was a boxer. Ali was a boxer. How do you reconcile the violent nature of boxing in the content of a nonviolent message for young minds? Well, one of the things I learned from Rocky from boxing there is it's the last thing that you want to do as a fighter is think, I'm trying to hurt this guy or I'm going to mess this guy up or, you know, or I'm going to knock this guy out. It's, you know, boxing is really about movement and timing and balance and coordination it's 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 more of an it's more of an art form it's it's you know than it is any kind of violent but you know there's no boxing going on at basketball in the barrio it's just that you know ali has such a profound effect on me and so many athletes that are interested in social progress and and carol it's more than just a nonviolent message i mean we've got musicians and dancers and storytellers and, and uh, artists are all coming in to work with the kids in fact you know the the line by the great el paso poet bobby bird is that it's really a scam, and if the kids wanted to sue and get their dollar back, they could do it because there's actually not much basketball and basketball in the barrio, or not enough to keep any basketball fan happy. Well, it serves as a foundation. Well, it's I, I, foundation is a nice way to think of it. I think of it sort of as a lure, as, as, as sort of this. I, I'm aware that it's false advertising, 
But, you know, there it is. We start and end with basketball each day. And so it's, we're there for six hours, and we do two hours of basketball. Why are you working with just elementary school kids? Why not middle school or high school kids? To, to my ear, to my limited view of the world, I just think that sometimes by the time a kid is a teenager, it's too late. That you, that, you know, they've heard from their parents that Mexicans are ruining the world or black people are dangerous or that all white people are, you know, that kind of thing. And I, th- I think that if you're going to get to kids, I think they have to be inoculated early. And, it, and, and one of the things that I believe is that younger is better and that we can reach kids at a younger age. And what happens at our camp, Carol, is that oftentimes the kids who have been through the program come back for the next few years. They had a good time and they come back and we put them to work as coaches. You know, I, I've come to believe that all great traditions in human history are handed down from person to person. I don't think that you can learn uh, the violin from the Internet, and I don't think that you can learn how to write from reading a book, and I don't think you can learn about spiritual awakening from YouTube. I I think it, it happens from person to person, and I think in this case what I'm doing is I'm handing the kids what Rocky Galarza, what I watched Rocky Galarza give me and other kids is this idea that I'm special because of who I am and in Segundo Barrio. What I've done with, you know, it's just my sort of, riffing on Rocky Galarza's life is trying to make the world, in my view, a better place. I want to ask you something about yourself. So you were a college basketball player. You were uh, a coach with many winning seasons. And I don't know if this is important in your life where your beliefs were evolving, but did you see contradictions between your beliefs and the actions and the tactics and the behaviors of players and other coaches, perhaps in other sports, you know, where it was win at any cost, show no mercy for the opponent, you versus them, those kind of things? Well, you know, Carol, I think I'll answer that by talking about Chicago, where I grew up, and gun violence is so out of control prevalent there that, uh, you know, one of our players from New Mexico State, Sean Harrington, uh, played in the mid-'90s, but he's uh, dove on top of his daughter uh, in uh, February and saved her life but took a bullet in the back in a mistaken identity uh, shooting on the streets of Chicago. And he's in a wheelchair now for the rest of his life. And I think about, I, I was, of course, examining the place of sports in society a long time before this this happened with Sean Harrington. But I think, I think frankly, that sports does a lot of damage in the inner cities in some ways. And see if I can explain why I think that. Let's, let's say if New Mexico State takes a player out of Chicago and gives him a scholarship, that's great for that kid. He gets a scholarship. He gets a school paid for. You know, we hope he gets a degree, of course. Sometimes they, players don't, but some, you know, oftentimes they do. Um, but what, what is the system that, we've, that we're encouraging and that we've left behind in Chicago? And in my experience, thousands and thousands of kids play basketball, and three or four of them get a scholarship. And of those three or four who get a scholarship, a very small percentage goes on to the NBA or, or Europe to make a living. And so what I see happening in Chicago is, yes, it's good that basketball can be a diversion. And if there was no basketball, would, they, would the violence be worth, worse? I don't know that. But I think it's also a mirage. And I think part, the danger of the mirage is not just within the black community, but it's also within, within middle class and upper class communities where they get this idea that sports is going to be this ticket out of the ghetto. 
And when the truth is, it's so few people that are going to be able to reap the rewards of sports, and the rest of them are left with nothing. Now, the reason I know this, Carol, is I was one of those kids in that, not that I was from the, the west side of Chicago, you know, the roughest area in the country, but I played all the time, practiced my dribbling all the time, and got nothing out of it financially. Uh, you know, there was no reward at the end of it. So no one worked harder than I did. And I had very little to show for it afterwards except for a good work ethic. But with me, fortunately, I had a father who could help pay for my college. You know, I'd had a, a solid middle-class upbringing. I'd been to the Unitarian Church as a kid, those kinds of things. But I think what what was left behind for most kids uh, basketball ends at the end of high school or at the end of grade school for most kids. And there's this underbelly of kids in Chicago and in our urban centers who've played hours and hours of basketball and have nothing to show for it. Other, other than that, they weren't shooting people during that time they were playing basketball, but there is no... So so in my view, in, in my view, it's sort of this pyramid scheme where there's this great money at the top for Tim Hardaway or Michael Jordan, but most of the kids get nothing out of it. Now, if, if some of that time and energy was was channeled into educational, you know, in, in, into education or library work or those kinds of things, I just think we're misguided in many ways. And and the lure of the money and the lure of the television glamour keeps kids playing basketball in a way that I have come to believe is is unhealthy and overemphasized. No one has ever cheered for solving, you know, uh, solving for X in their algebra algebra class. You know, they don't get a standing ovation for writing a good poem in their English class, but they're revered as heroes by the administration and by the media for, for being able to put a round ball in a round hoop. I understand that it's out of perspective, but kids don't understand that. It happens on a lot of levels. I think if you pick up the Albuquerque Journal or the USA Today, there's eight full color pages in the USA Today and 10 or 12 pages in the Albuquerque Journal on sports. And it might be twice a week that there's an article about global warming or, you know, or, or violence in Chicago or those kinds of things. And so I think it, it happens on a lot, a lot of levels. It's not just that kids are screwed up or that teachers are screwed up or parents are screwed up or that the media is screwed up. But I think I think the entire place of sports in our society is is, is upside down. We have much more with Russ Bradbird of Basketball in the Barrio in El Paso, Texas, in an extended interview on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Later, we'll visit with the executive director of Athletes United for Peace, the basketball camp's parent organization, about other initiatives that have tried to use sports to promote unity, diplomacy, and peace. Next up, though, a former collegiate basketball star and NBA player who also believes in the uniting power of sports, but wishes its pro-athletes would speak up more often on social justice and peace issues. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. We've been creating episodes about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution since 2002, and you can hear all of them on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You can also get a free podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest news about new episodes or timely shows from our archive. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, and today we're looking at programs and talking to people who believe that sports can be a platform for peacemaking in the right application. Well, absolutely. Sports is a, a terrific vehicle for promoting unity and understanding. That's Len Elmore, a star collegiate basketball player with the University of Maryland in the early 1970s, who went on to a 10-year NBA career, earned a Harvard Law degree, and is now an attorney and still occasional sports commentator. He spoke with me over a Skype line from his home in Maryland. Whether it's bringing together people from diverse backgrounds, sometimes in diametrically opposed uh, social and political uh, positions to have them focus on one particular goal, and that's playing as a team and winning, and having that be first and foremost in their minds, it certainly breaks down an awful lot of barriers. Uh, A great example would be an organization that I was a part of for a while, a charitable organization called Peace Players that utilized sports as a way to bring together Uh, children in uh, these controversial, many times strife-torn areas. Uh, I'll never forget hearing the story about uh, two basketball teams in Israel and in Palestine, which were mixed teams, both Palestinian kids and Israeli kids playing on the same team against each other. And at one point, uh, a Palestinian kid knocked down an Israeli young man and, uh, you know, a scuffle ensued and running to the aid of the Israeli young man was a Palestinian young man on his team. And I thought that spoke volumes to the importance of team effort, to the importance of sharing, to the importance of focusing on a common goal. And Len, how do you reconcile that unifying, uh, even peacemaking part of the sports world with the uh, heated rivalries and fierce competition and deeply partisan fan passion side of the scene? Well, look, I, I understand uh, from a motivational standpoint, that it's always the game has always got to be sold us versus them. I mean, whether it's team sports or on an individual basis, because that's how you motivate yourself to go after uh, whatever that goal might be. But you know, on a macro level, certainly that's what you have to do. A micro level, you still understand that in order to reach that, particularly in team sports, you have to look within, and that requires the the chemistry, if you will, the, the camaraderie, the, the, the cooperation uh, of individual teammates, and also respecting the other side has to follow those same values. And that's what gives you respect for your opponent, that they've gone through and they've had to do the things that you've had to do in order to reach a point where you two are competing. And so while the competition within the lines has to be fierce, uh, when it's all said and done, when the whistle blows, when the horn sounds, uh, that's where the handshakes come out to demonstrate the mutual respect. We gave it our best, and now that it's over, we can recognize each other for those efforts. So do you have any words of advice for fans to maybe adopt that mutual respect part of the equation better? Well, the only thing, again, that I can offer is 
the recognition of what your opponent has gone through, and he's gone through the same experience that you've gone through. When you get out there on the floor, I think it's up to the coaches and the other motivators to remain positive. And I think when things start to fall apart, it's because the negative sets in, um, the finger pointing, the negative sets in the, to be able to kind of relegate your opponent to something less than you. And that's where the problems come in. You recognize your opponent stands on the same ground that you stand on with the same experience. Uh, I, I think that, that mutual respect ultimately is, is what, uh, what, what comes out of it. And that mutual respect prevents that you know, all or nothing mentality, that us against them mentality to the very death. This is competition. This is not you know, a world war. Well, because what you just described struck me as a definition of respect for equal rights. Oh, there's no question about it. That, that's, that's the genesis of a respect, and that's walking a mile in the other person's shoes. Right, because you were really just using some of Dr. King's language there to talk about how to develop that kind of respect between sports performers. Well, I mean, obviously you can see, as I said, I grew up in the 60s, and... Uh, you know, Dr. King, among others, had an extraordinary influence. I mean, I didn't do it consciously, but uh, certainly, you know, those ideals and those principles haven't left me. Len, we heard earlier in our program uh, that an annual basketball camp in El Paso, Texas, takes time to share the stories about athletes who stood up on social issues over the years. Baseball players like Roberto Clemente, Kurt Flood, uh, the NFL's Dave Magassi, uh, and boxer Muhammad Ali, who gave up years during his prime to defend his conscientious objector status during the Vietnam War. And I've heard that you remember that very vividly. Tell us how old you were when Ali was doing that and what you remember about it. Well, I was 15 years old, and I remember the gathering of some really prominent athletes. Uh, Jim Brown convened a meeting that included Bill Russell, uh, Lou Alcindor, who is now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and a host of other athletes that you know I really revered and they were talking about things that had nothing to do with sports and everything to do with society and, and the social issues of the day uh, that particular meeting had to do with uh, supporting Muhammad Ali and his conscientious subjector status his fight with the courts and I thought it was an extremely important moment because of the gravity of the situation and the fact that these guys had an awful lot of influence over what People thought, and if athletes could do that uh, and go beyond the sports that they played, I thought that was extremely important and certainly something that I admired. In 2014, when the murder of African American teen Michael Brown by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, set off demonstrations, uh, you kind of called out black athletes for not entering the conversation in a column that you wrote for USA Today. Tell me about your thoughts and emotions in the days leading up to you actually offering that column and writing that column? What were you feeling and thinking leading up to that point as you watched things unfold? Well, it was reminiscent of those days uh, of which I spoke when I talked about the Muhammad Ali situation and athletes having a voice and having some gravitas in the particular situation. And it wasn't about taking a side. But it was about stepping forward and giving a viewpoint, certainly stepping forward and relating as I had done when I played professionally 
to young people and relating ideas, uh, relating history and trying to give them a sounding board. Uh, to me, there are two high schools that were highlighted in a couple of stories that were predominantly black football teams. And it took the football coach to really go back in history and give uh, these young people kind of a primer on the civil rights struggle and why the situation in Ferguson was so seminal. And there's a professional football team there and baseball team. And from what I understand, not one athlete came to visit uh, and to talk to these kids. And I thought that it was so important for people who, upon whom these kids look up to, for them to come forward and at least become that sounding board, at least, at least give their viewpoint and, and allow the kids to be able to see exactly you know, what has gone on in the past and what continues to go on and have it come from people that they admire. Uh, Len, let's, uh, let's name some of these things. Why you think we haven't seen much of pro athletes engaging in the public social or political discourse in the modern era? What's holding them back? Well, sadly, I think the thing that holds back most athletes is that purposeful isolation, whether it's uh, initiated by themselves or by their handlers, to stay out of the public eye on some of these issues because it might affect you know, their marketing and sponsorship capabilities. It might affect uh, their following on social media adversely. Um, uh, the other thing might be the fact that a lot of these young athletes today themselves aren't educated as to the, quote, struggle, if you will, um, and to the issues that are, that are affecting um, you know, young people of color today and, and overall affecting young people. Um, you know, you wish that uh, these young folks would hearken back to days prior to them becoming professional athletes and becoming, uh, you know, very uh, well off uh, from a resource standpoint. But I think sometimes that amnesia sets in after you've made it and um, it, it makes it more difficult for people to speak out. That reticence a lot of times comes from ignorance as well, as I said, that isolation uh, that fear that, um, you know, they'll be called out and certainly singled out and it might hurt their marketability. And I think that's obviously wrong and probably wouldn't happen, but that fear still exists. Hmm. Do you know of or suspect that any pro contracts or endorsement contracts restrict players' speech in any way, that they sign off on uh, not being vocal in a certain way? I would doubt it, uh, simply because, again, you know, you're legislating against someone's ability to speak freely. Now, certainly there's a morals clause, so you can't embarrass the club, you can't embarrass the league, and certainly you don't want to embarrass yourself, but we're talking about radical things there. But normally stepping forward from a, a standpoint, a reasonable standpoint, and taking a reasonable position, I don't think that there's anything in anybody's contract that would prevent them from doing that. Now, charity work is pretty common among athletes in the modern era. Some have even set up foundations, but you're really talking about something a bit different, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, look, the foundations are good, particularly when they're effective and, and, and when they're focused. Uh, many times, though, athletes set up foundations merely for tax purposes, merely to you know, hire and, and to be able to place family members and friends on salary. But, but the reality of it is that we're talking about nothing that's wholly organized per se, uh, but we're talking about, again, viewpoints and ability, the ability of visible people to take a stand and to stand for something. Now, the other side of it is if the athletes aren't going to do it themselves and it has an adverse impact on their images, 
the handlers of, of the images, if you will, those are the caretakers of the unions. And to me, I was very surprised that neither the NFLPA nor the NBPA, which are the unions of professional football and basketball, respectively, that none of them spoke out uh, as the voice of, of these particular athletes. Uh, Len, humor me with this hypothetical, and, and I imagine attorneys like to use it, but judges don't allow it often. But <laughs> somehow, let's say you were still competing in the NBA, okay, enjoying a star level like today's great players. What would you want to say right now? How, how would you use the platform? Well, I think the, the one area uh, beyond what we're, we've discussed with regard to Ferguson and, and some of the other issues, the one area I think is highly important for uh, young athletes and prominent athletes to speak out, uh, and that is the, the gang violence that's going on in our big cities and, and urban areas, particularly in Chicago and other areas. You know, we've got to be able to stem the tide of young people not only utilizing violence, but certainly, you know, killing each other. And I think it's important because so many of the athletes have come from communities that are similar and have had experiences in that regard, have lost friends or loved ones. And I think it's so important because these people, these athletes are respected by the gang bangers, bangers if you will. I mean, that's, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing relationship, but nevertheless, to be able to speak out against that, and you're not going to change the hardcore, but those young people who, you know, are looking for something to join, looking for something to be a part of, I think it's so important for an alternative to be presented, and to be presented by someone uh, that they look up to will certainly have a positive impact. Len, you do, I think, continue to be involved with the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. All right. So the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, which is a panel of academics and athletes and some journalists, I think, too, working to reform college athletics and improving academic standards, for one thing. Uh, do you see that work related to prepping athletic stars to perhaps be more engaged in social concerns if they happen to advance to pro careers? Oh, there's no question about it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why that the whole college sports uh, issue is so important to me. I mean, we look at the educational mission of universities and it's getting obscured by big time college sports and the money that's uh, floated around it. Um, I, I think if in fact the job of universities is to develop leadership, then that educational mission has to be focused upon and prioritized and, and make it the top priority. I think all too often though, when people become so immersed in the games themselves and you know, how to get the best athletes and the best facilities, uh, you know, creating a situation where education and leadership development isn't the priority of, of the universities, and I think that's wrong. Former basketball pro and collegiate basketball star Len Elmore, now an attorney and occasional sports commentator. You can hear our full conversation with Len through a link on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Check out our October 2014 episode for that. Next, we learn about an organization called Athletes United for Peace when Peace Talks Radio continues in just a moment.
listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. With all of our episodes dating back to 2002, available online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, exploring the potential for peace and harmony to find a way in our world through sports. We heard earlier about the annual basketball camp in El Paso, Texas, called Basketball in the Barrio which spends about two-thirds of its weekend with youngsters helping them to learn tolerance and social responsibility and about one-third of its time teaching basketball skills. The umbrella organization of the camp is called Athletes United for Peace, headquartered in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area for many years and led by filmmaker, media trainer, and sports lover Doug Harris. Harris moved to Sacramento in 2014 and was about to hand over the reins of the organization to the El Paso crew when he talked with our Carol Boss. Athletes United for Peace was the brainchild of Dr. Phil Shinnick, who was an Olympic uh, long jumper, uh, a world record holder for some time in the long jump. And uh, he put this organization together in protest of the uh, Olympic boycotts in the early 1980s when the USSR didn't participate in the Olympics here in Los Angeles and likewise for the Olympics that were held in Moscow. And so what Phil did was he gathered a big number of Olympic athletes together as, and, and tried to uh, make a statement that by no means should any type of political activities get in the way of people uh, continuing their efforts in sports. And so that was kind of the birth of Athletes United for Peace. And the focus of activities once it was formed? The, the main focus of the activities were, were basically improving relationships between the United States and the Soviet bloc countries because mm-hmm. the, at the time we were going through the, the nuclear arms race. Phil Shinnick and, and a lot of the early uh, founders and members of Athletes United for Peace put together activities and different uh, people-to-people exchanges and and brought people together. And it was all around um, the purpose of making people aware that if we continue this nuclear arms race, we could blow the world up three or four times over. And so that's kind of how everything started. When you became executive director in the early 90s, the focus changed to domestic peace issues. Why that decision on your part? Well, when I was handed the leadership of Athletes United for Peace, at the time I was a, a recreation director in the Bay Area and working with young people day in and day out and experiencing all the problems in the inner city communities, there was a big emphasis on things that could be done to create a more peaceful community uh, in, in different parts of the East Bay drugs, uh, gang violence. These were some serious issues. And, and it had more of a focus, I, I guess, uh, when I first started off uh, working with young people. And so that's kind of the reason why uh, I changed the focus. Well, what's a program, for example, that you initiated to address these needs? Well, the, the first program that I, that I actually uh, initiated, developed, and implemented was a program that we did with the city of Berkeley, which was called Late Night Basketball. And it was modeled after the national midnight basketball programs that were uh, taking place all over the country. We teamed up with the city of Berkeley, and what this program did is it brought together a lot of teenagers and young adults uh, on Friday evenings, year-round, 
that would ordinarily be involved in, you know, antisocial behavior, you know, uh, violence, just a lot of trouble. And we offered them a safe haven, a place where they could come, participate in the sport that the majority of them loved, which was basketball. A big part of that program was to provide guidance counseling for these young men and women uh, to help steer them in more positive directions, whether it be providing them with the appropriate referrals to uh, go back to get their GEDs, uh, to get them enrolled in junior college, to get them involved in job training programs. And then uh, a short time later, we got a lot, of, a lot of these participants involved with our media division. So this program lasted a long time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it did. did uh, about 18 years. And did you see changes happening as a result of, of that? Yes. It just brings me a lot of joy when I'm walking around uh, in the East Bay and I see all of these people that were part of that program and then they grown up to be, you know, fine young men, uh, men and have families and you know, it just, it just it's the greatest joy in the world when somebody comes up to you to tell you how much the program meant and helped them. Well, let me ask you this. So in just doing it, would that be equivalent to, um, you know, what some people might be saying, deprogramming, you know, and what I mean by is deprogramming some of uh, their learned behaviors about disliking opponents, for example. No, no. I And I understand clearly what you mean in, in this it's the whole concept of sports going in the wrong direction. Uh, a lot of times in, in today's society, we see the real ugly and bitter side of sports where, you know, a lot of parents uh, get overly involved with the Little League baseball coach and team and upset about their son's playing time and things. It's just a whole variety of issues around sports and one of the things that we always work to do is provide a positive experience for participants of our program. And you got to understand the programs that we implement and develop are primarily for young adults. So we're not really talking about, you know, the, the younger elementary age youth or middle school youth. Uh, we primarily were dealing with high school and, and college uh, age uh, athletes. And so there's kind of like a different focus. But we really try to de-emphasize when at all costs philosophy, kind of concentrate more on the having fun, the uh, fellowship of sports. Doug Harris, what is the most powerful and impactful example of Athletes United for Peace applying its mission that has made a difference and has given young people perhaps valuable lessons in creating peace. It takes me back to uh, 1999 when we were asked by the United Nations in the uh, Hague Appeal for Peace uh, to actually put together the sports program component of the World Peace Conference. It was the 100th anniversary of the World Peace Conference. We were honored to coordinate the uh, conferences, uh, youth program, and sports component. And so uh, we had an opportunity to take a delegation of 10 young men from the East Bay to the World Peace Conference. And 
we put together the Goodwill Exhibition Basketball Series uh, as as a sports component to the World Peace Conference. And then we also conducted uh, a youth forum, which we called Peace in Our Cities, with participation from young people from Sierra Leone, Columbia, and New York, and, and our delegation from the Bay Area. And it, it was just a wonderful opportunity. All of those 10 young men that, that took part in that, it, it had an everlasting impact on their lives and also mine. It was, it was a little difficult because you have to realize that during the time of the World Peace Conference, which was called the Hague Appeal for Peace, the uh, war had broke out in Bosnia. And a lot of the parents were really reluctant to let their, uh, th- let their kids travel you know, let alone during during the school year in, in May. How old were these young men? Uh, our delegates ranged from the 10th grade to the seniors in high school. I was reading the goals of that 100th anniversary conference, and it said it was to invalidate all reasons for war and, and also emphasize what was needed to create a, a global culture of peace. I'm wondering, did they get the opportunity to have conversations and connections with youth members from other delegations? I know they played exhibition games, but was there also the opportunity to be informed? Oh, yeah. We, we sponsored the uh, Peace in Our Cities forum that our, that our young people hosted and participated in. And then we went to a lot of the other activities that were going on uh, in, in the entire city of Hague for that uh, 10 days that we were there. So they, they were exposed to a lot more than just sports. <laughs> what were your expectations for that trip? What I envisioned for that trip was to learn about some of the conditions that other people were facing uh, in their communities. I was particularly interested in the violence centered around the drug cartels in Colombia. I was interested in learning more about the conditions of, of children soldiers in Sierra Leone because in in the Bay Area we have our own uh, problems with violence. And so it was really interesting to me to get to meet some of the people that were working in the same light in, in those parts of the world and to hear their stories. And not only for me to hear the stories, but also our, our youth delegation uh, for them to interact with other people in other parts of the world uh, that they were, they were, they were trying to do the same thing that we were doing. Uh, only we, we had the opportunity to introduce them to the whole sports diplomacy, which they, they really dug and enjoyed. Who are a few of what you might call the patron saints of Athletes for Peace? In other words, people who have really put their fame to positive use for peace and justice, or maybe in some cases sacrifice some of their fame for it. I'd have to start off with uh, our founder, Dr. Phil Shinnick, uh, some of our other founding board members like uh, Dave Megacy. Uh, Dave Megacy is our board president in Dave was the uh, first NFL player to walk away from the game of football. Dave Megacy was the Kurt Flood of football. He was the first player to walk away from the game in in protest of uh, the slave mentality of, of, of the NFL where the owners owned you outright and there was no free agency where players could travel to another team or not. 
He's a founding board member, uh, Guy Benjamin, uh, All-American quarterback at Stanford and quarterback in the NFL for the 49ers. He he was our former executive director, uh, did tremendous work globally to promote peace, education, and friendship through sports. Uh, Dr. Jack Scott, uh, who was the athletic director at Oberlin College in Ohio, who hired Tommy Smith and John Carlos to coach the sport that they love so dearly, track and field, when no one else would touch them with a 10-foot pole. They were basically blackballed from the sports world. Jack reached out to him. So people like that, I think, that are uh, directly involved with this organization over the years that uh, have helped to keep it going. What do you think is to be learned from the stories of some of these athlete peace builders? Well, I, I think to, to learn about anyone, not only, you know, people involved with Athletes United for Peace, but there's a lot to be learned from anybody who has the passion and the desire, the motivation to, to work with people for peace. I think, you know, you, you have to just look at anyone and commend them for their efforts in working in, in such a very tough field. I mean, people that put their their lives on the line uh, to make this a better world, a peaceful world. I think we all strive for peace. And so, but there are very few people out there that really advocate for it. And so I, I think that you have to not only commend people in our organization, but people just all over the world that, 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 that lay their life on the line to make the world a peaceful place against all odds. My hat's off to any and everybody that, that, that strongly has peace in their hearts and they want to roll up their sleeves and work for it. Why do you think there aren't more of them? And by I, I'm talking about athletes who are willing to um, advocate publicly for um, nonviolence and for peace. Well, you know, I think that I think that uh, you have a lot of athletes that that do that, but uh, I I don't see why there's a big reason why they have to make it public. You know, uh, just because you don't hear about athletes making statements and things like that publicly doesn't not necessarily mean that they're not you know doing things. It's just that, you know, the media doesn't always pick up on it. Well, some of these athletes have tremendous fame and notoriety. And um, why don't you think more of them take advantage of that? Well, you're talking about take advantage of talking about peace within the mainstream or, or in their personal lives or when they're speaking to kids and youth in their foundations uh, or their tournaments or their clinics or some of the activities that they run that aren't covered by the media. That's that's my whole point. You have a lot of athletes that talk face-to-face with people within their own lives and their own programs and their own involvement, but it doesn't make the... Uh, doesn't really necessarily make the mainstream news. It's not that they're not talking about it, but I don't know if the media provides them a platform where they can talk about it. A, a, a really famous athlete that might 
go out and start, you know, holding a press conference and, and talking about what he really feels about what's going on in Palestine, uh, you know, between the Israelis and, 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 and the people of Gaza or uh, Syria, Iraq, I mean, just all over the place. It might be career suicide for them. So one of the things you, you have to understand is that a lot of the pro athletes today are controlled by the agents and the different advisors uh, that want to protect their corporate appeal at all costs. And talking about what's really going on might not be appealing to their uh their corporate sponsors or their corporate uh, their corporate identity in the commercial world, and so that might be a big reason why you see a lot of people that choose not to uh, speak about what's really going on. Wouldn't that be the courage that we should be looking toward them for? I, I that's hard for me to answer because you know I don't know uh, I don't know. In particular, if if that's what their where their interest lies, I mean, you know, you take uh, Michael Jordan, for instance, who sells billions of dollars worth of tennis shoes that are manufactured in sweatshops, and when he's asked about this type of activity within the Nike Corporation, he turns uh, a blind eye. Uh, same with Tiger Woods. And so these are mega stars and this is what's going on with them. And so I, I know I noticed that uh, during the Trayvon Martin situation that uh, LeBron James uh, and uh, the Miami Heat team uh, showed uh, solidarity and support by wearing uh, hooded sweatshirts and, and took, a, took a picture and a photo. And I, and I remember them uh, speaking out about the injustice of the police gunning young black people down uh, for no apparent reason. Not only the police, but in, in the George Zimmerman case, just being gunned down. Uh, he was acting, so to speak, in a law enforcement type of capacity when he wasn't actually uh, a police officer. But, you know, these these are some real issues that are going on right now. And, and I would have to say that they involve peace. I mean, the big issue right now with peace is peace in the community, peace from not getting killed, not getting gunned down by the police. Uh, and I'm not talking about just black kids getting shot and killed by white police officers. Uh, I, I saw in the news of, of a young uh white young man who got gunned down in Salt Lake City by the police. It's not a pretty scene. Does Athletes United for Peace reach out to sports stars at all to be more vocal, to take more of a leadership role in passing along the message of peace? It seems like that would be so powerful to have some risk their corporate ties for the betterment of society. Yeah, no, we, you know, since I've been involved with Athletes United for Peace, we've had very little involvement with, uh, you know, professional athletes uh, because, you know, um, a lot of times when you bring in professional athletes, it's like a photo op, it's like a stay a dog and pony show. And I, I think the people 
that we've dealt with in the East Bay, they they don't really look at uh, that as a, a big thing, you know, to have someone come in just because they're in the NFL or the NBA. It, it's not a big thing because they understand in the Bay Area that the majority of the athletes that play uh, for the the professional sports teams in the area that once the season is over, they're gone. Doug Harris, can you give us your take on the evolution of sports in our society? What are the good trends and what do you think are the harmful trends and the role sports plays in our lives? Well, I think sports is one of the most enjoyable parts of everyone's life. Uh, recreation, whether it be competitive sports. I think sports is the activity that brings people closer together. Uh, It's an enjoyable experience uh, in most cases. However, uh, it could be a very tragic and horrible experience for people uh, that are forced to be involved with it. You have a lot of young people that uh, their parents force them to play uh, sports, uh, parents that maybe didn't reach their, their, uh, the pinnacle of what they wanted to be as athletes. And they try to relive that through their kids. And it's, 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 it's really horrible, but you know, it, it, sports is like a double-edged sword. There's a lot of very good and positive things about it, but then there's also some of the more gloomy and negative sides of sports. So you kind of have to weigh it out, you know, but 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 I must say, in my life, my 53 years of, of life, that sports has absolutely been phenomenal and a big part of my life, and, and I'm going to continue to enjoy it and participate in it. Doug Harris, for many years, Executive Director of Athletes United for Peace. To hear the entire conversation with Doug and with each of our guests, as well as to find a link to a Doug Harris documentary about basketball in the barrio, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the October 2014 show. That's at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. There you can also sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, order CDs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Additional support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.